So our text today is Luke 9, 18 through 27, and last week we covered 18 through 22. It's such an important passage, and Jesus asks in that section 18 through 22, you know, remember he first asks his disciples, he's got them alone, he asks them what the crowds have said about him, what the people understand him to be, what their opinion is about him, and then he asks them the most crucial question ever. Directly, he says, but you, who do you say that I am? And he's prepared them for this point. This is what he wants from them. And he had just prayed for them that God would give them eyes to see, open their hearts to respond correctly, and Peter, you know, the leader, the, spokes, the spokesman of the disciples, um, it must have encouraged Jesus to no end that Peter, you know, straightway, clearly, unequivocally says, the Christ of God. And that was a view that the culture didn't have. He stood apart from the culture. And... It was what Jesus wanted, and what he's saying by that is, you know, you're the one. You're him. You're the one God's people have always been waiting for since Genesis 3.15. We've been looking, aching, hoping for a redeemer to fix things, to redeem sinners, to restore the world, and you're him. You're the anointed king. And the 12 don't really understand all that entails at this point. But in confessing Jesus to be the Christ of God, they're saying you're more than just an important figure. You're much more than just a teacher we can add to our preferred teacher list. You're the guy, you're the Messiah, the anointed king come to save. We will follow you, though we don't really know all that entails. It's like a commitment without knowing what it entails. And, you know, a big reason our world will say very high, favorable things about Jesus as a great spiritual leader or a great teacher, but they won't regard him as the Christ of God, and in its truest sense, the Son of God. One of the big reasons for that is we just like to pick and choose what we want, what seems good to us. And the disciples make that statement, though they really don't know all they're saying, We like to be in the center. I like to be in the center of my world. Well, immediately after saying that, Jesus gives them this huge shock. He really rattles them because he redefines what Messiah is. There's no pat on the back and moment of congratulations. It's immediately what you need to know is what Messiah means, and so he looks at Peter and the disciples and he sets gospel foundations. He says, I must suffer many things. I must be rejected and I must be killed by the Jewish leadership and then I must rise again on the third day. That's what being the anointed king you've all been waiting for entails. And, and the reason for that is you don't know the depth of the need. 
It's the heart of my mission because the heart of mankind's problem is man's sin. And that's what I've come for. And so our world, and maybe we ourselves, don't really like that kind of Messiah. And largely because we don't like the kind of life that means for us. A certain kind of Messiah means a certain kind of life. A certain kind of view of ourselves. A certain kind of living in the world. We would prefer a savior without a cross. We would prefer a life that's not cross-shaped. The English poet W.H. Alden in the 20th century wrote this. He said, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. <laughs> because he is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. Why Jesus and not Socrates or Buddha or Confucius or Mahomet? None of the others arouse all sides of my being to cry, crucify him. And see, fallen man, our fallen heart, our fallen way of doing things is so contrary to how God does things. And we would never devise a Messiah or a way of life like this. Yet scripture says, Jesus says, the cross is the way of human flourishing. Jesus' cross is the means, the only way to accomplish your and my good, our eternal good. There's, there's no other way. And that has huge implications for each of us who join ourselves to Jesus by faith. We join ourselves to a way, a cross way. Now it's really important as we enter into this passage that Jesus didn't say, you lay down your life so that you can be saved. He said, I lay down my life so that you can be saved, but anyone who's gonna follow me is gonna follow my way of living. The basis is already given. Our response now is depicted in the section we're looking at today. And I remember Luke 9, 23, memorizing that in junior high, and just saying, man, the Christian life is serious business. And I was really awed by this verse. It's an awesome verse. So let's read our passage today. And he said to all, 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. These are some of the strongest discipleship statements that our Lord makes. The grass withers and the flowers fade and this 
word endures forever. So three points, the principle, then the grounding of that principle, and then a note of promise. So the principle. Jesus says in verse 23, and uh, just recognize that he has been speaking to his disciples. You know, 18 to 22, he's focusing on his disciples, but notice what he says, he says to all. It seems that the crowd is hovering out here and now he calls everyone to him. It's everybody, it's all. Later, he begins talking about each in that anyone and whoever. So it's all and each. Mark makes it clear that it is the crowds and not just all the disciples when he says in the parallel passage and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. So he gets everybody around him. And he says, this description of discipleship pertains to all who would follow me. It's not just a select group of particularly distinguished and devoted followers. We tend to do that. It's everyone, it's all of us. No matter what age, it's every one of us. Again, it's not the basis for your accepted with God, but it is the response of anyone who would be a part of Messiah's people. So Jesus wants everyone to know what it costs to be his disciple. Um, to follow a Christ whose goal is the cross is to live a life with the cross at the very center. You know, Jesus isn't hi- interested in hiding the small print. He isn't like those you know, wonderful military enlistment commercials that give that just thrilling scenes of climbing mountains and shooting guns and rappelling out of helicopters. And don't talk about the boring stuff and the dangerous stuff. And I'm all in with those commercials. Jesus sets it out plainly. I want you to know what you're getting in. And he doesn't just say this one time and kind of move past it. It's interesting that different sayings in this chapter are repeated. Uh, They're repeated three other times even in the Gospel of Luke. It seems that it was something he said regularly. It was on his lips. Even the form of verb, when he says, and he said to them, that's really an imperfect verb. It it says, he would be saying to them. It's like you say about your dad. You know, dad always used to say that. It's something that they could recall Jesus always saying. Like he was often on his lips to them. So this discipleship principle has three parts. It's three commands, three imperatives for each of us who would come after Jesus. And coming after Jesus describes this ongoing master-learner relationship. I mean, you're tight. You're the learner, he's the master. You're just following him. So first aspect of that discipleship relationship is let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. And the parallels, with the parallels, this is actually the only time in scripture that self-denial is specifically stated. You can draw it from a number of other passages in scripture, but specifically, this is the passage. So Jesus actually looks at you today. He looks at me today and he says, you have to say no to self. How dare he? Like, you have to say no to yourself. Self, capital S, no. It's not self-loathing. It's that he, we're in his image. He esteems us more than we know. Our self is bent, 
curved in on ourselves. We say no to self. We do that at the entrance to the Christian life. It's another way of saying repentance. We enter the Christian life by faith and repentance. We're saying no to self. We're saying no to all my self-salvation projects. Everything that makes me feel that I'm okay with God from what I have done in comparison to others, I say no to that. As, as common as it is, as natural as it is for me to base my acceptance on those requirements or achievements, I say no to that when I receive salvation as a gift. It's incredibly humbling to think that I can't do enough to be approved by God. I have to have another. My need is bigger than I thought it was. And therefore, grace is so much more abundant than I ever imagined it is. Entering the Christian life, therefore, we say no. But our conversion as we enter the Christian life is ongoing. In a sense, we look at ourselves and we say, you know, Life is a daily faith and repentance, a daily conversion. Not that I get justified every day, that's one time alone, but I'm daily deepening my faith and repentance. It's continual and progressive. And so I'm repenting every day. It's like Luther's wonderful first thesis. At the Reformation in October the 31st, 1517, when our master said repent, he meant our entire life is to be one of repentance. Our entire life, every day. Jesus says that we say no to our own desires and wishes and interests. Faith in Jesus is faith in Jesus as the Christ, the anointed king, he's Lord, I offer myself to him. I put myself on that altar the hymn, All for Jesus, says it well. All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my beings, ransomed powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. Like, it's all his. I don't reserve any of it, though, every day I want to. It's all his. We give it all to Jesus, and he gives us back to us with a new motivation that loves him and loves others. Jesus dethrones self from the center of our lives and enthrones himself in the center of our lives. And he looks at us and says, to thrive, you say no to self and yes to me. And so that is so antithetical to our culture, maybe more now than ever in the history of the world. And, and we live in this current, and so it, it's shocking to us that I would say no to myself. It sounds in our culture foreign, non-genuine, anti-human. Like we're about affirming self, accepting self, not denying self. And so Carl Truman, he has a couple of little illustrations. He goes, you know, in the 70s, how did the weakest argument for the abortion lobby become the strongest? Ask that question like, and that weakest argument was the baby in the womb is merely part of the woman's body. How on earth did that become the leading argument when not just pro-life but pro-choice knew that wasn't the case? Like empirically it couldn't be the case but how did they 
camp out on that argument? Well, it's easy to believe what you want to believe. The deepest commitment of modern men and women is the free autonomous self. Life's purpose is to attain personal psychological happiness. This happiness, therefore, is a filter through which we determine morality. Or today, he asked the question, how did this statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, how did that statement become standard fare? How did it happen where a few years ago we wouldn't have ever thought that? And again, it's the commitment to the free autonomous self. Our inner feelings determine who we think we are. Life's purpose is personal psychological happiness. Happiness is contingent upon realizing my desires. Therefore, it's the lens through which I determine morality. This is the environment we live in, and we're shocked by these arguments. It seems like a foreign land to us, and yet we have to look at ourselves and say, how is my sense of well-being determined by the satisfaction of my deepest desires in the moment? in my emotional well-being? How am I wrapped up in myself and my self-centeredness and selfishness? It's unnerving to see how deep it is. And so in the face of this cultural sense, which you and I share too, Jesus' teaching is more radical than ever. Your fulfillment is found not in meeting all the desires of yourself, but in denying self and learning from me. And, and the second aspect of this principle is let him take up his cross daily. And if the first was difficult, the next is utterly jarring. I, think of how people would hear Jesus. They lived in a world where crucifixion was a possibility. And the Romans regularly did so. There are instances in Israel's history not long before Jesus walked Palestine of mass crucifixions. The audience likely saw a crucifixion. Rome reserved that for who they deemed the most despicable, dangerous criminals, but it was not uncommon. And so the image is the criminal condemned would then carry his own crossbar to the place of crucifixion. He'd be condemned, take his own crossbar to the place where he'd be crucified. And so Jesus is speaking of the ultimate of self-denial. He himself did this. And so he's saying, you know, this is what I did. And if you are my follower, if you'll come after me, you will be similarly rejected by the world. And you'll take your own crossbar, your own particular pain and shame and persecution that the world inflicts on you for loyalty and allegiance to me. And just be clear about that. And this primary meaning for that is just straight on. It's, it's rejection and persecution by the world for following Jesus. And he's saying, be prepared. Be prepared for your crossbar. And so increasingly in our culture, you know, being a Christian is not just kind of backward or weak-minded, but it's increasingly becoming dangerous and evil, and it likely will continue. And so one who follows Jesus' word is going to be seen as unloving and intolerant. 
so we attach ourselves to Jesus, we will suffer the repercussions of that. It won't so much be violence in our culture as our brothers and sisters around the world deal with, but it's issues of reputation and rejection and exclusion. You know, young people in, in school, you know that sense of just not fitting in or kind of being left out. And sometimes that has to do with you're trying to follow Jesus. Well, another aspect of this, however, you know, in the medieval church, they talk about losses and crosses. I like that phrase. The Puritans used it too. It's the idea that we share a lot of suffering that everybody shares, whether you're a believer or unbeliever. And this doesn't specifically address that, but the way we suffer is distinct from the way a non-believer suffers. We suffer in hope and in steadfastness. It, it relates to this. But, but maybe even deeper is it's a lifestyle of repentance again. I'm carrying my cross. You know, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Like, it's not me anymore, but Christ lives in me. It's a violent dealing with the old man, with the self, with my attachment to the world. It's like a crucifixion. We're new men and women. We've been crucified to the old man. We're not that anymore. We have a new identity. Christ now lives in us. And this is a daily issue. You know, Luke's the one, the only one of the gospel writers that says, take me across daily and follow me. And that's, that's, that really comes home. It's a daily lifestyle of repentance and faith of crucifying our sin patterns and leaning on Christ alone. Well, third, let him follow me. And this is a continual moment by moment following. It's another way of saying to come after me. We entrust our life to Jesus's care. And we're always tempted to take it back and do what needs to be done to take care of ourselves, but we really are. We've offered the care of our lives to Jesus. The, the picture of the disciples following Jesus around, and Jesus just, if you look at a map of what, how Jesus ministered, he's walking all over the place. And the, the idea is the same for us. You're, where I'm going, you're going. You've attached yourself to me. You've submitted your will to mine, and you've submitted your way to me. And so we look at all that God's given us, you know, the time God gives us, that unrenewable resource. Like, your time is mine. We look at our treasures, you know, our money, our possessions. You say, it's mine. We look at our talents, and God's loaded you with talents. How can I use that for your glory? We're following him in all of it. Well, that's the principle. Well, how about the grounding? The grounding, verse 24 and 26. So there's this little word for in these three verses, and it means that these verses are contingent upon verse 23, and they explain it further. They give further foundations to it. So it's other truths that we keep in mind in order to come after Jesus as he commands, and I have like three words to describe it. First is a paradox, verse 24. There's a paradox in your life. And that is, for whoever would save his life or soul, the word is soul, will lose it. Uh, but whoever loses his life or soul for my sake will save it. It's a paradox. It's a seemingly self-contradictory statement that on deeper reflection is true. It's like we would say less is more. On the front of it, it's absurd. More is more. But we say, no, the more I do, the less I really do. 
But it's further than that because when we say that, we almost say it hum like humor, you know. But this is the paradox of paradoxes. This is like C.S. Lewis would say, the deep magic of the universe. Because it's the way that God built us to thrive and to flourish. God himself lives a paradox. And the very being of God is other-centered. The Father's not out for the Father. The Father lays down himself for the Son and the Spirit and vice versa. They're giving and serving in this beautiful, self-giving relationship. The cross is not an anomaly. It's an expression of the way God is in his inmost being. I will sacrifice myself to the uttermost for the good of my beloved. And so Jesus is saying in this paradox, if, if we live to satisfy our own desires and wishes and interests, if our non-negotiable is me, if the world must revolve around me, if we must have the world's pleasures, successes, and acceptance to be happy, then we'll really lose our lives. We're not built to be in the center of the kingdom. We don't function that way. But if we deny our desires and wishes and interests, offering them to God and others, if we remove self from the center of our life, if we give of our time and talents and treasures for Jesus and his kingdom, if we live lives of love and service and sacrifice for others, then we'll actually save our lives, not just for eternity, but right now, right now. And you know that's the case. You know those moments in your life where you just know, all of a sudden you go, I am so self-absorbed right now. And you are right in the center and it's just not healthy for you. you. You attest to this repeatedly in your life. And then we repent and we believe, we seek to love others and we find that our soul expands. <clears throat> our heart expands. It doesn't narrow and turn in on itself, which is so unhealthy and so uncomfortable for us. The paradox. Second, the prophet, verse 25, prophet. For what does, it man, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? So it's another undergirding of that verse 23 principle. Jesus clarifies what is true profit. That's something we like. So what's really valuable, he asks. <clears throat> So what do you think is really valuable today? What's valuable to you this morning? So on the one hand, he puts the whole world. He puts the diamonds of Russia, the rare earth metals of China. He puts the gold of Peru. He puts millions of galaxies, the depths of the oceans, all the fish, the heights of the mountains, the lushness of the valleys. He puts the beach houses and the personal jets in the latest fashions. Your looks, your intelligence, your fame, your friends, your followers, and all your pleasures, all of that. Imagine it's all yours. It's all yours. That's on one side. And then on the other side, he puts your single solitary soul. And he's saying it's, it doesn't even compare. All of that, he says, is passing, it's temporary. It's like what C.S. Lewis says in his Weight of Glory. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations are all mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. 
He puts all that on one side of the scale and your soul on the other and says it doesn't even compare. You're just way more valuable. It's your soul that's gonna endure. It's the soul that's ultimate. It's your soul, your inner self, the real you that lasts. And it's the most precious possession by far that you will ever have. Save God alone. And what do you do with your most precious possessions? So what are your most precious possessions? And how do you treat them? You see, the, the poorest, sickest person in the worst slum in the most underdeveloped country is essentially as rich as the wealthiest person on the world's list of billionaires. Because all the other stuff doesn't matter. It's that you have an eternal soul given to you by God in his image. It's priceless. How do you treat it? Jesus is urging us, don't choose the world over your soul. It's not a fair trade. Don't do anything that will be destructive to your soul. Cherish it, guard it, nurture it. It will live eternally either in heaven with God who gave it or in hell apart from God. Take care of it. Third, publicity. For lack of a better word, I wanted another P, verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and the holy angels. It's an amazing scene, but it's very convicting. The point is, if we're not willing to make a public profession of faith in Jesus, no matter what happens in the world, if we so fear rejection from the world that we refuse to own Christ and his word publicly, then the greatest of all public pronouncements, when Jesus returns in glory, he will refuse to own us because we have never really given our soul to him. And see, he destiles himself here as the son of man, and it's the Daniel 7 image of the son of man, this one like a son of man who ascends to the throne of the ancient of days and gets a kingdom and judges it. And he's just looking at us and saying, you want a voice that declares that you're approved and welcomed. We all do. And the voice you most need and want is the voice of your redeemer who has ascended up to the throne of heaven and is gonna call your name out and say, this one belongs to me publicly. So whose approval do you most want? Well, then there's a closing promise in verse 27. And so verse 27, Jesus says this cryptic statement, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And it's a promise, it's an encouragement. He said some hard things and Jesus, grace upon grace, he's always encouraging us. And notice he puts a lot of emphasis in it. He says, but I tell you truly. So what's Jesus mean by this? He's not talking about his final return in glory because everybody's gonna see that. He's talking about some seeing it. Jesus is speaking of the already nature of his exaltation, of his kingdom, what's about to happen. 
It anticipates the not yet nature of his kingdom when he concludes all things. We live in this strange intermediate time between the already and the not yet. But he's saying there's things even now that are gonna be so encouraging to you when your knees get wobbly and you start fearing the world and the tug of the world is so strong. In a way, it could refer to this little glimpse of glory he gives Peter, James, and John in the very next passage when he takes him up the Mount of Transfiguration and shows him, them who he really is. It's a preview. In a way, it's that. But there's a number of things we could say, but it especially refers to Jesus' gospel work for us. Not very long from now, Jesus is going to go to the cross. And the cross is going to look like an utter defeat and humiliation. But that cross is actually his conquest. Because at the cross, he pays the price of sin. At the cross, he suffers hell. At the cross, he enters into eternal death. At the cross, he breaks the bonds of hell, death, and sin. At the cross, he rises victorious and is welcomed by his Father. And in him, you and I are welcomed. He's talking about his cross and resurrection. Then he's talking about how he's gonna ascend into heaven 40 days later. He's gonna sit at the right hand of God, a man at the right hand of God, interceding for you and me. And then he's gonna pour out his spirit in power upon his disciples at Pentecost, and they're gonna preach the gospel of the kingdom, and God's spirit is gonna change hearts and bring people from darkness to light, and it's gonna spread around the world, and hearts that were enslaved to sin and self are gonna be free and are gonna be submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and are gonna know him and enter into freedom and joy. He's talking about all of that and all that happens not far from then, but he looks at you and me and says the very same thing, that you know it even better than they knew it at this moment. Might you be encouraged by God's power at work in your life? Because that's where the battle rages. More, more than any battle in this world, it's your heart because your soul is so precious to him. And Jesus came for your life and he says, I'm unleashing my power in your life, your family, your church, your city, your world. And we're seeing that take place and it's not natural. When a, when a, when a young man professes his faith before the church, it's common to us, but it's a miracle to us. Because God has to take out a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. And so when he does that in our midst, we celebrate that and we say, you're at work. And I'm encouraged by that. And it whets my appetite for that final day when Jesus returns and wraps up all things. And so you and me who follow after Christ, might we make the cross our way and give ourselves in love and grace and compassion and service to those around us. And that is the way of flourishing because that is the center of our Redeemer's mission. May God add his blessing to you. Let's stand.